So I think that I was probably the only person last week that thought we were going to get all the way through chapter 15. <laughs> um, surprise, you're right. We didn't. Um, I, I got done with um, the sermon last week and just thinking um, I didn't get as far as I, as I wanted and I, I had like a whole nother sheet that I didn't get to um, and yet it was fitting for us to conclude where we did. So then I thought, well, what did I do really um, with chapter 15 um, and 14? Um, I think when I got done, I, I thought, you know, I think what we did together was hopefully provide a framework for being able to read 14 and 15 well. How are we reading or hearing or listening to sermons or how are we still reading and rehearsing the story of the prodigal son? Hopefully we move the goalpost a little bit further to be able to recognize the depth of what's being stated and, and the story of chapter 14 and, and the cost of your discipleship and those who are actually hearing it and who they are and, and, and uh, how they rest in Christ and yet the other persons that are there, the Pharisees and scribes, don't want them there. And then we move from there into the passage of the kind of crescendo of the two sons which is most explicitly identified in what we then finally come to call the story of the prodigal son. Hopefully we're all able to read it, perhaps, in a new and fresh way based on a strategy of understanding the unity of chapter 14 and 15 together. So I thought about it for a while and thought, hopefully that's what we established um, because there was much left that I wanted to be able to get to and I felt that I would have poorly preached um, 14 and 15 if I jumped into 16 this week. So if not for your sake, for my very own, I wanted to continue to move through chapter 15 together, kind of now moving away from somewhat focusing on the framework of how to read 14 and 15. Who are the two sons? What are the tax collectors and sinners? What are the Pharisees and scribes doing? Why is Jesus talking about coins? Hopefully we're moving past the framework of how to read it, and we can move into the essence of the story itself. Important to remember of what we have already learned from last week in our time together of reading 14 and 15 about the two sons who are present in the passage is this. Sin is not simply something that is outside of us. That we can outperform. That we can outpace. But rather, this passage and others like it teach us so clearly Sin is something deep within us. From which we learn in this very passage, from which those who are in open rebellion, tax collectors, sinners, the younger brothers, or those in external moral conformity, going through the religious programming, attending Sunday worship, Scribes and Pharisees, the elder brother. Sin is not simply something outside of each of us. It is something deep within all of us from which we all need merciful divine deliverance. Both brothers. Everybody here. 
Both sons need merciful divine deliverance. The point of the passage so clearly has shown, it's not just, you know, we all know those people over there need uh, deliverance, forgiveness, salvation, but the folks over here don't really. But the story puts all of us into the two-brother analogy. And what arises out of both, no matter what it looks like or the optics are, God knows the heart. So when the older brother appeals, I've slaved for you all this time, he knows you haven't. No, I can prove it. I've got a whole list of things that I've done for you. And he can say, they weren't done for me. I'm not disputing that you did them. You were here. You did work in the fields. Yeah, I saw you each day. I waved to you as I went out and you came in. I, I saw that, eldest brother. Well, then you owe me this. I owe you nothing. You did it, but don't kid yourself. You didn't do it for me. This is the story of the two sons. But what I want to draw our attention to now, as was read for you, beginning in verse 11 through 32, is where we begin with dealing more explicitly with the story of the two, two sons. And it begins in verse 11, as you see there, with the younger brother. So I want to kind of walk through the younger brother this morning, and hopefully we can uh, really see all that's taking place and transpiring in the text and, and grow as our having spent time in it. Begin with me, if you will, looking at verse 11 and 12, where we really kind of kick off the story of, remember, who is the audience? Sinners who know they are, and Pharisees and scribes who contend they aren't. Two sons. So Jesus says, okay, let me tell you a final parable. The, the coins, the sheep. All right. Listen to this. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Now everybody there. Verse 12. And the younger son, or the younger of them, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, Important for us to understand the depth of the scandal that has just broken out in the passage. We might read it as maybe a simple selfishness, but there's far more depth to what the son just said to his father. And anybody here that is in the audience, which is, again, 15-1, everybody here who is accompanying and drawing near to hear him, even those who contend they aren't the eldest brother, all of them are here. And when he says to them, there is a father who had two sons, and the youngest came to the father, and you won't believe it. Guess what he said? Give to me the share of property that's coming to me. And we're like, okay, yeah. And the, the audience goes, <gasps> at that moment, in hearing it. Why? What, what, what's taking place? Remember, the most obvious piece is this, and it still occurs most oftentimes today. The division of property within a family estate only occurs you could probably guess it, after the death of the father. Do you see the implication? 
This isn't a simple, whimsical, rebellious moment on the younger brother. The younger brother hates his father. One writer says, quote, with the demand, the son is essentially saying to his father, as far as I'm concerned, you can drop dead, end quote. It's not like there were spare things laying around. The son is demanding, give me what you'll give me when you're dead. Just give it to me now. He absolutely is willing to sever the relationship that he has with his father. Not kind of put it in a bad way. Not get it a little wrinkly and awkward. The son absolutely wants to sever the relationship with the father. And say, I want nothing to do with you, but I want what you by blood owe me. It's merely contractual. He would rather have money than the life of his own father. Now, again, think of the response when a father hears this. Of course, he's caught off guard, right? Now, we don't know the background of the text, and I don't want to paint it too much because we simply don't know. Maybe he had a hunch that his son was going to turn and say it to him in the, in the, in the idea of a parable that we would read about the story of a son and a father, another son, and how it was going. But think about a father hearing from a son, just give me what you owe me and go and die. Again, another author comments on the history of the context. Quote, a traditional Middle Eastern father This is putting in the context of the first century. A traditional Middle Eastern father would be expected to respond to such a request by driving the son out of the family completely with nothing except physical blows. End quote. That would be it. So think about the audience now. There's two brothers. There's a bunch of brothers present. Chapter 15, 1. Everybody's there. And what was their expectation to take place next? Well, we have the beauty of seeing the parable and hearing it a ton of times. They didn't. They're waiting for the next move. And the next move is going to be what? Well, obviously, the father smacked him around and drove him out of the house and said, you little jerk. That's what's supposed to happen. Everybody knows that. To do anything else would be scandalous. You should give it to him and give it to him good and hard. But, of course, in the moment of hurt and the father being crushed by the son's attitude of indifference, even to the very life of his own father, notice the father's response in the text, 12b. Jesus says, and he divided his property between them. Now, important, and I don't do this often, as you know, uh, I, I don't put a lot of, too much weight, hopefully, uh, on single words in particular passages. It, it can get you kind of uh, twisted around in the text and put emphasis where it doesn't belong. 
But I do want to note there is an important linguistic feature here in the passage. The term used for property, if you look at 12b, again, the father's action was to take his property and divide it between them. The term there translated for property is a term which actually means livelihood or manner of living. That's significant. It's not because that was the only word in play to describe the property scene. There are other terms that can describe finance, cash, and assets. This term is translated property in the sense that we say the father gave his portion of livelihood to both of the boys. Now, let me read the text for you one more time and hear the depth of what the father has done. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Right? That we have the the property. And he, the father, divided that property between them. The question, if we were to handle this passage honestly, in light of the father's activity, is this. How could the father divide the inheritance, that is, his manner of livelihood, between the two sons while he still remained alive. How could he do it? The eldest would get two-thirds. The youngest would get the final third. Give me a few dollars. No. Give me the way you make your living. Give me everything you've got that I would get if you were dead. And then the father says, here it is. What, how does the father do that and still remain alive? The answer is simply this. It's not very complex, and I don't mean to read too much. The answer is simply this. Only at great cost to himself. That's the point. It's not like, what other career could he have gone and done? I wonder what the father was skilled at. That would be like going off unnecessary rabbit trails, obviously. The point is he gave them their inheritance, all that he had for them, while he still lived and remained. The picture of great cost. He gave to his sons only at great cost to himself. So you see, the father divides up the land and the assets, his livelihood, that is, his manner of living, and he gives it to the sons And the younger son, if you follow in the text of verse 13, notice what the younger son then proceeds to do. It gets even worse. This is how much he hates his father. Look at how terrible this picture is in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered. And there's another linguistic feature in the passage. Again, I don't mean to over, to bog us down there, but these are significant terms that really color the text and create outrage in the mind of the listener. Verse 13, not many days, uh, not many days later, the youngest son term gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered the property in reckless living. You see, the term that I want to draw your attention to about the son gathering up all that he has carries the sense of, if we were to to, to kind of literally translate the picture created by gathering, it is, we could quote it something along the lines of 
turned into cash. You see, again, we're being shown by our Lord the hatred of the younger son toward his father. There's no wishing it away or pretending it isn't happening. The reality is the younger son hates his father. And in complete indifference, Jesus continues in verse 13, he sold off all of his inheritance to the cheapest and fastest bidder. Can you imagine the burden of the father? First at great cost to himself, he divides to the sons. And then the son takes all that he was given. You get this 40 acres. You get this plot where there's good grain. You can have these tools from the shed. You can have these skills that you've cultivated. Here's what goes with them. And then you are broken as you leave. And then you come to the drive the next day. And there's an auction. And it's sold to whoever wants it. Whoever will give me the cash immediately for it. It means nothing to me. We had a kind of a, a, a situation. Last, last weekend, we, we as a family went to L.L. Bean for a few minutes. And L.L. Bean is playing the part here in the analogy of the, of the, the younger brother. Um, we love L.L. Bean. We enjoy going there. I stand by their products 110%. I try to convince everybody around me that they need more L.L. Bean things. Um, based upon the durability, it's a whole thing. But, but I will say, they're playing the part at that moment of the younger brother. They're, they're looking to liquidate a few items that they've had sticking around a while. And so there was a bike there. My father-in-law had wanted this particular bike for a, for a long time, this, that, and the other, to have at the farm. And so he was wanting this bike. It just so happened to be that particular bike, believe it or not, was being liquidated by the younger brother that day in L.L. Bean. And, and here's the tag. So then, again, picture the father's inheritance here is labeled as the father sees what the younger son is doing. And my father-in-law sees the deal, and then he says, I'll give you cash, $50 less. Younger brother says, deal. In other words, The bike doesn't mean anything to me. I just want the quick cash exchange. I want the sure money in the moment. This is precisely what the younger brother is doing to the father's inheritance. Give me what's coming to me by oath through blood because there is no love exchanged. Just give me what you owe me, cold and dry. I'll take it and I'm going to liquidate it while you watch. It means nothing to me. And neither do you. And this is precisely what he does when he liquidates it into cheap cash. Notice how he valued it when he had the cash. You can see him kind of stuffing his pouch, taking the cash and shoving it in there. Whoever will take it, pennies on the dollar, just so he can get away from his father. Look at verse 13 through 16 one again. Not many days later, the younger son gathered up. That is, he liquidated all that was there. He took the cash. And then he took a journey into a far country. He just wants to get out of there. He wants to get away from his father. And everything that home meant to him, it didn't mean anything. 
And, but notice what he took with the, with, with the assets that he had, the liquid cash. There he then simply squandered his property. He just blew it all. And then the text carefully says, in reckless living. Notice verse 14, just how it begins. And when he had spent everything... You then continue, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in great need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Again, at this point in the text, he has shown nothing but contempt and hatred for his father, contempt and hatred for his home, all of his memories that he had built there, the place where he was raised, it meant absolutely nothing to him. He's absolutely cold and indifferent to his father. He takes the money, he squanders it. At this point in the text, as he feasts among the pigs, look at the end of the text of fifteen sixteen, when he hired himself out and went in to feed the pigs, look at verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Do you see the picture of a far country and no one giving him anything, but yet the father giving him everything? The cruel cruel reality of rebellion is brokenness. The world will give you nothing, but the father offers you everything. This is the dynamic of the story. I'm going to make it on my own, scribe and Pharisee. No, you can't. There's no way to make it on your own. You will be left with nothing. You'll see. I'll do my thing. No, I already do see. You cannot make it on your own. And then if we notice the text a little bit further of verse 17 through 19 in the reality of a far country away from the Father, a life of brokenness and emptiness, selfish want and pleasure brought him to nothing. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, a moment of reflection and repentance. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I and look at the final statement of our selfishness. But here I perish with hunger. But I will arise and I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And then he proceeds with his speech. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Notice what it takes for a son to come to the end of himself. Brokenness. He's squandered everything and there's not a friendly face in town. So it brings him to an end of himself, a picture of his own repentance. I have nothing and it's been painfully revealed to me. Why I couldn't have learned this in my father's house. Here I eat like pigs, literally, and I have nothing. And when I reach out, I see and receive nothing from no one. And then when he says to self, he says, self, 
I need to go to my father. Notice that he doesn't try to weasel himself back into the family. He doesn't come up with a speech like, I'm kind of at fault, but I'm kind of not because you did these things. You were no perfect father. I mean, let's all be honest. We all have guilt to blame. We all, we all share in it. So, you know, he, he doesn't. This is a picture of genuine repentance. He's not someone who's pinning blame on everybody else to the degree which he thinks they contributed. He came to an end of himself, not to an end of the bad baggage with his father, and he dealt with it while he ate with the pigs. And he figures, I'll work it out with my dad when I get back, and we'll talk about it. No, it's, it's not about my dad. It's about me and my own sinfulness. When he came to an end of himself, not the causative effects of everybody around him, himself, he said, self I need to go back to my father and not say, hey, give me a little bit more or could you let me back in? Notice what he says. Will you treat me like a servant? In his own self-rehearsed speech, he asked to be treated like a slave in the father's fields. Now, again, in this moment, if we were to look at the son and we work through, but he came to an end of himself, and he said, and this, how many times have we heard this? How many of my father's hired servants are more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise. I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's it. No family dynamic. No nepotism. I get it. I burned your bridge. Just put me in a field and let me work. Maybe as we hear it, we're moved to sympathies for the younger brother. Because we identify at some level and we have compassion for him. But I want to draw your attention just once more that the original standing audience has no sympathy for the son. They're not tearing up. They're not saying, man, this is one of the best moments I've ever heard. I wish we had an iPhone to record the father running, embracing his son. Uh Uh-uh. They're outraged. You see, culturally, the only rightful response of the father to such a humiliation as his son put him through, was upon return a public shaming and renouncing of his son. That is the only rightful response. He says, self, I'm going to go back. And the son knows that because he's not asking to come back in the family. He's asking, just let me work in your fields. I've seen you treat the servants when I was growing up in the house. I saw how you treat how benevolent you are, even to those who are not in your family. Just let me be one of them. He knows because upon return, what will happen to me? I will most likely be publicly shamed and renounced for the hurt and the shame that I brought in my father's house. Now, listen to the original audience. They're moved and they want blood. They're thinking the same thing. You missed your opportunity the first time. 
when you gave him all the property to go. You missed your opportunity to shame your son, to put him in his place, to publicly renounce him, drive him off with blows for the arrogance that he showed you and the hatefulness in his heart. You missed your first opportunity. Don't blow it again. When he shows up and asks for mercy, you know what to do. Because remember, there's two brothers listening to this story. And one brother knows well what that sinner deserves. The crowd is still thinking quite simply, what a scandalous, rebellious, hateful little son. So, at this point in our text, the scandal only gets greater. What was outrageous about the son's activity that brought the entire episode on is ratcheted up and even more scandalous still. Notice how our Lord proceeds. Knowing, again, the audience is like drooling for revenge. Like, get that kid when he comes back. Yeah, a little weasel, he comes scuffing his feet like this and saying, oh, Dad, I love you. No, give to him good and hard what he deserves, what he's done to you, how he embarrassed you. We've all been talking about you behind your back, sometimes in front of you, about how embarrassing this, all that the son has done to you. What he's done. Oh, did you hear about Adam's son? He's over there squandering his whole life away. I heard he's eating with pigs now. Really? Oh, Lord, I can't believe that little jerk. When he's coming back, well, you know what to do with him when he comes down the road. And we'll all cheer you on as you do it. But the text takes yet another, even more scandalous twist. Look at verse 20. So he kind of builds up that intestinal fortitude. You know, he's like, okay, whew, I got my speech ready. I said, self, say this to your former dad. See if we'll put you in the field. All right, now we just need some internal courage. Let's do it. I'm going to leave the swine and I'm heading home. And I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to roll the dice. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. You know what to do then. Jesus says, but while he was still a long way off, Look at the optics here. Why did he have to be a long way off? Why? Why is the story being told like this? Why was distance even factored in? It gives you a picture of mercy and compassion. The distance is on purpose. You notice they could have shortcut right to the conversation. So the son said this and the father said that back. Isn't it amazing? It's not enough. It's more dramatic than that. So as Jesus tells a story, he says, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, yeah, we're all ready to get at him. No, his father saw him. Yeah, 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 we're ready for it. And he felt compassion. No! Yes. And the son came running. No, 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 we're still on the father. The father ran to the son and embraced him. 
right there in front of everybody who knew that's not what you're supposed to do right now, says the eldest brother. But the father ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. And notice the text next. And the son said to him, Father, he's got the speech down. He's ready to tell his side of the story. He's ready to admit everything he's done. Here's his father lovingly embracing him, kissing him. And he's like, hey, 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 father. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Do you see? He doesn't want to hear it. The self-rehearsed speech, the groveling at his feet. He doesn't say what? All right, prove to me right now just how bad you squandered it. Tell me the worst details. And and I'm ready to make you navel gaze and say your proper... Um, story to me, and then I want to know the details, and then we'll get into it really good, and then we'll see where we go from there. He is the lost coin. He is the lost sheep. He is the prodigal young brother who was lost, and the father eagerly with mercy embraces him as he repents and returns. The father ran to the son as the son came to an end in himself. Notice the activity of the text, of which you know well. I, lo- I love how the son really just wants to get the story out there. He, he, uh, don't cut me off. I've rehearsed the speech over at the pig swine uh, with the pigs eating the slop. I've rehearsed this for days on my journey back. Hear me out. And he says, the father, you can see him bracing, hugging him, lifting him off the ground, you know, snuggling on him. And then saying to the servants, while he's still saying, father, I have, he says, To the servants, bring quickly. You see me run all the way over here. Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. He looks terrible. Bring the fattened calf he hasn't been eating. Let us all eat together. Let us all celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. You see, the language here of the father in front of an audience that is ready to shame this young man coming back, the father declares, this young man is my son. The son is saying, I couldn't be, I can't. You know what I've done. You know who I am, what I've put you through, what I've done. And he says to the son, no, you are my son. And the crowd says, he can't be. He cut himself off legally. You already gave him his third that was coming to him. He is contractually out. And the father says, no, he was lost. He was lost. And now he is found. And again, to be clear, this is not a picture of mercy. 
that is shown simply because the two, that is the son and the father, agree to pretend it didn't happen. It did happen. It is true. It actually occurred in time. But the son came to an end of himself and identified it as wrong. And he came back pleading for mercy and found it. You see, the shame that was brought upon the father in this scenario, in the scandal, has been absorbed by the father's love and sacrificial embrace. It's not that it cost the father nothing. But the father clearly spent for the son. Important to note here before we conclude our time together um, with the eldest brother. I want to say this in application. It, it, it's necessary that we see here with the son who comes to an end of himself and stands and says thus, I, the sinner, knowing what I've done, will go to my father. The only possible outcome in the entire chapter 15 and all scripture indeed everywhere is that the one who repents of their sin will be forgiven. Look at the joy of heaven just briefly. I want to scan it and then I got to conclude because I'm going to end up going too long. Verse, uh, in chapter 15, look at the language of the end of verse 5, rejoicing. Look at in 6, rejoice. Look at the response of heaven for one sinner who comes to an end of himself and says, I will go to my father. There is nothing but joy, verse 7. Look at verse 9. She calls together all her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. So you have rejoicing, rejoicing, joy, rejoicing. Verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over how many who repent and go back to their father. Even just one. In other words, every single one. If you look at the text of the two sons, he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. He put the best robe, the best ring, the fattened calf. And he said, let's celebrate. In verse 25, finally, he heard music and dancing. This is the only possible outcome for someone who comes to the end of himself or herself and repents and seeks their father for mercy. Now, the final portion of the text in our time together, and I am winding this down, as you see, with the eldest brother, and that is, it's not that there's no longer any shame in the text, right? So the, the younger son brought shame upon the father. The father has absorbed the shame in the mercy he has shown and compassion sacrifice is shown to the younger brother. So it's not that the shame days are over. What's important here in the original audience that Jesus speaks, he says, the shame has been transferred. There's still one other son. And now he's bringing shame upon the father. No, no, no. I'm not bringing shame. He's bringing shame. Sinners bring shame. Your moral external conformity with a rebellious heart brings shame upon me. Both sons bring shame. But now it's been transferred to the eldest. Look at the end of our time. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music 
and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked, Go find out what's going on up there. Verse 27, he said to him, Your brother's come home. And your father, he's killed the fattened calf. You know, the, the calf of celebration. Because he has received him back. What? How outrageous. He received that person back? That's an outrage. My father should be ashamed. He hasn't earned anything to come back. It's more than that. He's received him back safe and sound. In other words, he's washed him clean. He's put a new pair of shoes on his feet. He's put a new robe around him. He put a new ring on his hand. He's home. The father has taken him in. Safe and sound. It's your brother. You should rejoice. Verse 28. And this is the Pharisee who's hearing the story. The scribe. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Look, see, in other words, it's not that there's just hope for the really rebellious. There's also hope for the religiously self-righteous. The appeal of the gospel goes out to both sons. The father came out to entreat him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You know that. Yet, you never gave me a young goat and I, that I might celebrate with my friends. You never gave me what was owed to me. But when this, look at the language, look at the resentment, look at the hatred of mercy and compassion. When he says, this son of yours, do you see the servant bridged the gap? Your brother's home. And he says, he's not my brother. And the father says, come, your brother's home. He goes, this son of yours. He indicts the father and shames him right then and there. But when this son of yours came, might I rehearse how wicked he is? He devoured your property with prostitutes. You saw the scandal. This son of yours who devoured our home, you have killed the fattened calf for him. You see, the eldest brother despises what is free and provisionary. He insists on it being earned. The final thought of the text is simply this. There is hope for both brothers. Those who are insistent on making it on their own and those who are squandering their life away in reckless living, the gospel is sufficient for both to invade internal rebellion and to address external rebellion and address everyone's needs. 
with the same mercy, the same compassion, the same forgiveness. But what is the difference? One of the sons in the picture came to the end of himself. The other insisted that his morality be factored in to earn what the other son received by gift. Final word of the text is this. This is our Lord speaking to both sons gathered. All four groups, tax collectors, sinners, scribes, and Pharisees, all listening in as they symbolize the two sons of the text. Verse 31, he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It's, it's not that you can't have it as well. But I don't make payments that I owe to anyone. All that is mine is yours. But I don't make payments to anyone. It was fitting to celebrate. Remember the scribes and Pharisees saying, it's not fitting. You eat with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus comes all the way to 15.1 through verse 32 and says, it is fitting that I do. You miss it. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Just like I'm doing right now with these sinners and task letters. For this, right here, these repentant folk, this your brother was dead indeed. Sinners, task collectors, rebellious, and is alive. They have rested upon me. They were lost and are found. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text that reveals 